Welcome to the Stanford's Travel Podcast. Mapping your travels since 1853, Stanford's is the world-famous independent map and travel bookshop based in London's Covent Garden. Thank you for joining us on this little podcast adventure. Okay, so the Book of Reykjavik is um, the latest in Comma Press's Reading the City series. Um, They've taken us all over the world over the last few years. We've been to Jakarta, we've been to Barcelona, we've been to Shanghai, we've been to Gaza, and this year we've already been to Venice. And now we're heading for Iceland um, for the Book of Reykjavik which uh, this one has been edited by Becca Parkinson at Comma and by Vera uh, Juliusdottir. Um, it's a collection of short fiction. There were 10 stories yeah. and it has a foreword by, um, I guess, one of Iceland's greatest literary exports, Schoen. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the two authors that we have here tonight. So starting with uh, Frida Isberg, Uh, She is known as one of the most remarkable writers of a new generation, according to the judging panel of the Nordic Council Literature Prize. Her short story collection, Itch, was nominated for the prize in 2020, um, as well as for the Icelandic Women's Literature Prize, and it won the Icelandic Booksellers Prize. Um, Her work has been translated into five languages and has appeared in various publications abroad as well as at home. Uh, She occasionally writes reviews for the Times Literary Supplement, and she's just told me that she actually worked for the TLS at one point. Um, Isberger is also uh, a member of the poetry collective Imposter Poets and has published three books of poetry with the collective. And I also know that she has a new novel out in October. Is that correct, Frida? Yes. Yeah. What's What's it called for us? Um, it's called Merking in Icelandic, which is maybe markings or, you know, like earmarks in sheep. Oh, right. Yeah, tags, I guess. That they have. Yeah, yeah. Maybe like that. Fantastic. Okay, and we also have uh, Bjorn Haldorsson. He was born in Reykjavik in 1983. He studied English and American literature at the University of East Anglia in Norwich over here and has an MFA in creative writing from the University of Glasgow. His short stories have been published by literary journals in Iceland and the UK, and have also appeared in translation in English, German, Italian, and Hebrew. His first book, a short story collection titled, here we go, Smagliapir, which means misdemeanors, was published in 2017. And his second book, Stoll, meaning Route One, is a novel and was published earlier this year. He lives in Reykjavik. Okay, so let's start our discussion with a little bit of an introduction by you two um, to literary culture in Reykjavik and in Iceland as a whole. So maybe let's start with um, Frida. Could you tell us a little bit about the literary activity as you experience in Reykjavik? What kinds of events go on? Um, What kind of activity? Can you describe for us? Hmm. Yeah, so for the past maybe six or seven years, we've had a pretty 
phenomenally strong uh, poetry scene, which uh, is very much touched about. The older generations just didn't really know what hit them because there came a new generation of poets. And it became very uh, well shot and it was very vibrant for, yeah, for the past since like maybe 2013, 2014. And it's been, uh, we've been kind of riding that wave now, uh, seeing just a lot of poetry, poetry collections, seeing young authors begin with the poetry collections. And I guess that's really what I find, uh, you know, definitive for my, my generation at the moment. Of course, there are a lot of venues as well um that are just you know we have the icelandic literature center who is and uh, of course reykjavik is a city unesco city of literature mm-hmm. um and you know there's a lot of always of course uh before christmas there's the christmas book flood uh so that it really in the market really uh, saturates before the book market really saturates before Christmas. So basically the majority of the whole book year comes out from the 1st of October until the 1st of November, uh, which becomes uh, quite exciting, of course. Everybody is now just itching for the new books that will be arriving soon. Quite stressful for publishers, I would imagine. For publishers and readers. It's a... (laughs) feasts of, yeah. for the readers and for us, you know, the book community in the, for, in the whole. Um, Can I ask what yeah. you think triggered the, this growth in poets and poetry readings, etc., in the last few years? Could you pinpoint anything that started it? Yeah, there was, um, there was a publisher called, um, that's called Partis, my old publisher, uh, that started up poetry pamphlet series uh, at the same time there became just you know there were a few grassroots um, publications from the same kind of from yeah different kind of pockets um was one of them and uh it just kind of grew just grew and grew and grew and uh, over the from 2012 they published I think 30 pamphlets until 2017, so that's five years. Um, and so people started to self-publish as well a lot, and there uh, there became you know this small poetry publications from young people as well. And the thing is that because we are such a small community. Uh, our biggest bookstore change uh, chains they um, allow us to just come with our poetry books and they put them on the shelves and there's nobody you know there's no uh, there's not a lot of gatekeepers in that respect so it's you know it's not um, it's not looked very down upon to self publish and uh, that creates a very like vibrant scene because obviously you know the publishers are publishing poetry now as well, and the the bigger publishers that didn't really take risks, they are beginning to publish a lot of poetry as well. 
Um, so Bjorn, can I ask you, did you ever take your book into a bookshop in Reykjavik and they just took it? <laughs> well, I was a bookseller in Reykjavik for close to a decade. And actually I worked in one of the three sort of big major bookstores uh, from one to the other uh, during that time in between going back and forth to the UK to study. So I was sort of on the other side of the counter accepting all these books and, you know, dealing with irate poets, uh, you know, who didn't think that their like self-published pamphlet was being displayed prominently enough and all that stuff and sort of trying to, you know, make sure they had, you know, a good space on the shelf and so forth. Uh, so, and with me, I, I published my first book with a very small publisher in Selfos, which is sort of a, a town, you know, 40 minute drive from Reykjavik. And they run a little tiny cafe there where, you know, the publisher himself is often found like flipping waffles. <laughs> He's an ex-politician who now runs a coffee shop and uh, a publisher. And, but they definitely, like, they're small, but their book, they made, it's, there's a, there's a, the networking aspects of it is, it's, it's made very easy to get your books everywhere. Uh, at the same time, it's very reliant on sort of, you know, the writers themselves being, you know, hardworking enough at sort of making their, making themselves known and sort of putting their name out there so the book actually sells, because it won't stay in the shop forever if it's just taking up space there, I'm afraid. And I mean, on that note, media coverage, how is that um, it currently in Iceland? Do you find, are people talking about books on the TV? Are there book shows on the TV, on the radio? Do the newspapers have big review pages? Not big review pages, I would say. Uh, they sort of, they, they're, Sometimes our, we, people would like a lot more reviews, but I think that's generally the case with all writers at all times, pretty much. But there is always uh, coverage and reviews of most of the stuff that comes out. Uh, one aspect of the, the book flood is the fact that sometimes because of so much stuff is being published all at the same time in the space of two months, things can get lost. Mm. You know, simply the media you know, they don't get the chance to cover anything in the lead up to towards Christmas. And it does mean for in some cases that, you know, new books, new writers, smaller publishers might get lost and might not get reviewed until perhaps after Christmas, at which point sometimes, you know, everyone is sort of looking towards the next Christmas. So that's an interesting aspect of it. But I have to, to add to Frida's point earlier, I think the scene here has changed massively from what I knew when I was a kid, because I, I grew up in the suburbs outside of Reykjavik and I knew no one who wrote. And, and I just, what that generation, Frida's generation, I'm a little older, has done is basically make writers and poets a lot more accessible to your average reader than they were before. And I think that's by having events and places you can go and, and just making it easy to meet other writers. And I think that's integral in creating more writers and creating that sort of coming generation. And, and Frida says there's a lot more event spaces now. I mean, what do they take the, the form of? Is this bars? Is it bookshops? Is it what kind of what kind uh, of venues? Well, we're getting to the point where every bookshop is also a bar and a coffee shop, basically, because <laughs> they're you know they're desperately trying to figure out means and ways of surviving. Currently, they're, you know, they're selling books and also like, you know, head massage 
mechanisms and so forth. So let's, you know, it, it, it's those venues by and large, but there are also uh, great sort of cultural venues such as Grantarsus, which uh, the imposter poets are, have a reading series in currently, and sort of other venues that are uh, maintained by the city and specifically sort of meant as breeding ground, grounds for literature, I would say. So there's always a space available. What I do miss a little bit, I miss, I miss more DIY spaces, just coming <laughs> like, you know, just a little bit more punk sort of out of the way space. Although I'm, I'm sure they're there, I'm just too old and uncool to know about them. <laughs> or maybe you need to start one yourself. <laughs> yes, also that perhaps. <laughs> Okay, you both mentioned the book flood, and I think uh, Frida gave a, a really good indication of what it is. And I also, it's in Icelandic, it's actually Yola Book of Flood, is that correct? Yeah, you, you mm -hmm. got it. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> and I guess, and I might have this wrong, um, I work for a publisher with three Icelandic authors, and they all mention it quite a lot, um, is that it's generated by a tradition. And I want to sound you two out on whether this is just a tradition or it's a cliche. And this tradition is that everybody in Iceland gives everybody else a book for Christmas. And everybody in Iceland turns the TV off on Christmas Eve after their massive meal and has a cup of hot chocolate and their Christmas book and they read it into the night. Okay, let's start with Frida. Is this what welcomes you this coming Christmas? Uh, this is of course a generalization, you know, and it's, uh, you know, just maybe a selling point for the city of literature. Uh, obviously, no, not all homes do this, but um, I would be surprised if I didn't have at least three books for Christmas. And I usually read, but I am a book person, so I can't really. But uh, in my in my family, um, who live in suburbia, are not very culturally. Uh, you know, they're more into football and gymnastics, and you know, um, they also get everybody gets at least one book for Christmas. So I would say that you know the the tradition is is definitely there. And uh, obviously this is a cycle, you know, the publishers, they publish before Christmas because they know that they will sell then, you know, and the backlists, they also sell before Christmas. Everything, you know, all the books, they just sell before Christmas. I think it's something that maybe in the UK, I mean, Mike Becker might think this is, would be a great tradition that we would like to start here because it would really help sales. <laughs> um, there is another uh, cliche that I hear mentioned quite a lot. Maybe Bjorn, you can pick up on this. And this is about the sagas. So these are the two things that we hear about in the UK a lot about Icelandic literature. It's the, the book flood, Christmas and the sagas and that all literature in Iceland is influenced by the sagas. And I think when I was reading the Book of Reykjavik, when I was reading through this collection, I did feel that it was quite refreshing to find there was no evidence of the sagas to be found. Um, Bjorn, tell us about this cliche and tell, us, tell our audience who might not know what these sagas are, these infamous sagas that are supposed to influence your writing. 
Ah, uh, yeah, the sagas of Icelanders. I mean, they're, you know, the ancient text of sort of the, or the ancient year 1000, we're not that old as a country. It's sort of the uh, old text of the sort of adventures of, you know, the settlers of Iceland and so forth, massively exaggerated through years of oral storytelling before they were written down in the 13th or 14th century, you would have to ask a historian. Uh, I definitely don't feel the tradition of the sagas in my own writing. Um, but I mean, I studied them in school. We all sort of read all of them in, uh, you know, in elementary school and high school. And they are very interesting just in terms of structure because they're so succinct. They're such concise storytelling. Once you get past the bit at the front where they list like everyone's, you know, begat, 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 etc. And, you know, similar to Bible stories, <laughs> they sort of, it's, it's a lot to do with uh, genealogy, to be honest. But the actual scenes and the actual sort of relating of emotions or, you know, things going on are very concise and very interesting. And they, they have a lot to do with sort of immortal themes of, you know, uh, that, you know, run through all literature. But personally, no, I don't find them rampant through all Icelandic sagas, perhaps leading up to the 20th century. I th think they may have had more of an impact, but in recent years, less so, or, or maybe reversed that people are writing against them more. And this was what I was thinking, um, Frida, I, as I read through the anthology, I was wondering, is it because it's a book about a city? Are Reykjavikans writing in a way that's more um, akin to you might, writing that you might find in any European city? Um, do you think that you can, your fellow, your colleagues, um, your fellow poets, your fellow writers are writing in a way that's different from how maybe people wrote 20 or 30 years ago or even longer? Um, so you're saying, yeah, that Icelandic narration has become more modern or yeah. Yeah, the difference between the generations? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the only thing that I could say about this would or what I've thought about this is, is that we've seen a lot of much more women writers, uh, just a huge increase in women writers globally. And I think that uh, there is definitely, a, I don't know, feminine uh, kind of narration going. I, I, you know, you cannot generalize, of course, but I feel like, I feel that there's a, a globally that women writers are reading each other and they are having impact on each other. And I feel that there is a distinction between, um, yeah, that kind of, you know, just kind of this, I cannot put my finger on it, you know, but I, I feel like for the past 20 years, that would be what I would say. Uh, for me, I, I'm, I'm, I'm only 28, so I cannot really uh, talk about what happened before. Um, in, yes. his, in his foreword, Sjörn actually mentions Asta Sigurdardottir, 
um, as an, a short story collection from the 1960s. And he pinpoints that as a turning point. Um, and he says that that, and I think, the, I'm just looking, sorry if I'm not looking at the camera, I'm looking at the, the, the PDF. Um, and he says that this was, it made Reykjavik a place that could be a setting for stories. Mm -hmm. And that maybe before it wasn't. And I think he's linking this with Reykjavik's development from a, a kind of bit of a backwater into a place that had its own gravity. And I actually reviewed the book of Reykjavik for the European Literature Network's riveting reviews this month. And actually I meant, I used this term that Reykjavik has now got a gravity of its own that maybe it doesn't quite realize it has. So Bjorn, I mean, do you, can you agree with Sean that there was a turning point in the sixties? Do you know this particular work that he's talking about? And oh yeah, yeah, I know. Was it revolutionary? Uh, I think so. I mean, they, it was written in this period, much of Icelandic fiction sort of leading up to the millennium and even reaching further than that, strictly seems to deal with the traumatization of urbanization. It's the trauma of, of the city novel because Reykjavik didn't really become a city until the, you know, 19... 30s or 40s and even by that time it was mostly considered a city by the people living there and not by the outside world necessarily and it's still today it has very much the aspect of the village to it i mean i see the same faces every day when i you know walk to work basically where we are a village at heart and we are villagers at heart and even more than that we're we're islanders really which is as a very unique frame of mind uh, and so much of that sort of fiction, it, like of that period, it, it, it's, there's almost, there's the cliches of, you know, the simple country lad who comes to the city and finds himself and gets into hot water and trouble. It's, you know, a Dickensian story almost. Uh, but with Asta, the Asta Seodar, I think the sort of perspective was definitely turned. Uh, it sort of added a new voice to that, uh, to, which was the sort of voice of a woman in the city. And perhaps it drew some inspiration from outside as well and sort of city liter literature that came before, but it, it definitely sort of created a space like being in the city, writing things set in the city, created a space for a perspective and a voice that was not available you know, two writers writing in the countryside, oh, aside from maybe Guðrún Frá Lundi, which uh, Frida knows, who sort of wrote the, sort of the, so she's sort of the Jane Austen of Iceland. Basically, <laughs> hopefully she'll get translated at some point. Hopefully. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, so there, there is, but even now we're very, we're still dealing with that trauma. I think this is one of the main reasons both that, there was, there was no Icelandic crime fiction leading up to the millennium and the fact that it's exploded the way it has since in the fact that it just, it, we didn't have the setting for it. We didn't have the visual landscape for it until sort of, until, you know, Reykjavik started to feel more like a city and less like a village. You've actually beautifully introduced my next question, which is about crime fiction. So I actually work for Arenda Books and we're, a small publisher, but we've got a big list of crime fiction across the Nordics. And we've got three Icelandic crime writers, um, Ragnar Jonasson, Lilia Sjögerda Dottir, and Eva Borg um, Egerstottir. My question 
Uh, three, though, if you want to take this one, is there is, has been an explosion. You have Ursa as well, Ursa I mean, these people are making big noise across the world. I think Ragnar Jonasson is selling millions now across all his books. And it's, he's a big deal. Has this helped all of Icelandic writing or has it been a hindrance? Do you find if you've got a name like Frida Isberg or Bjorn Haldorsson and, you go, and they expect you to write something that begins with a body? found in the in a crevice or something hmm. um i think that uh scandinavian war or the icelandic war uh, has definitely helped uh iceland in the big literature you know uh yeah definitely but uh in the, in the sense of globally um but you know it also you know, it all ties together that, you know, um, we all started traveling a lot during, you know, 2010, the Western, you know, countries and Reykjavik became, you know, a, a, just a destination for tourism. And, and at the same time, at just, you know, 10 years before the wave of Scandinoir comes. So it's kind of this, you know, uh, comes together, I think. Uh, I As for the second question, I don't feel the pressure of Scandinoir at all, at all. But I think that it's mainly because it's become such a strong genre and it's been marketed, you know, as so specific genre um, that you cannot really, yeah, it, it, you cannot really, uh, I guess the genres are the genres marketing wise aren't really talking together um, when it comes to publishing or or you know or even readers, but but I think globally and internationally, of of course, it's a huge attraction, and you know we have much to thank <laughs> them, you know, for that. Beyond, I mean, have you got anything to add to that? I mean, do you, do, are you, do you feel a pressure? No, I mean, there, I think there are, I'd rather say that there are other pressures uh, than that. Uh, I think what uh, the writers like Issa and, and Ragnar and um, all of them have done is amazing because for a long time they were generally sort of lacking in, in sort of getting of being included with other literature in Iceland because it was this new genre and there was like an older uh, generation of readers and reviewers who sort of, you know, thumped their nose, sort of looked down at crime fiction as, you know, a separate genre and not high art, you know, all that. So I think what they managed to sort of show in their strength is amazing. And they've always been very focused in sort of working together as a group. I've seen they, they take events, they, they work events together and they sort of help one another out. Uh, and I think that also helps. And I think that spreads far wider also. And, and I think we have, and I think it's, it's very powerful to see them sort of bonding together and sort of basically creating their own genre, their own literary form, just all by themselves in the, in the span of a couple of decades. And it's interesting to see uh, other Icelandic writers, because the rest of us who aren't, 
you know, we, we don't fit that, any label so easily. I mean, Icelandic fiction draws from so many different wells. It, it draws from, you know, everything that we bring to it, but most readers here also read in English and we have had strong uh, bookstores for a very long time that have a very seriously curated uh, English fiction department, which is not just English or American fiction, but, you know, translated fiction from all over just because our publishing world, uh, our publishing industry is small enough that it can't quite, you know, maintain that amount of uh, variety. So we're sort of this amalgamated creature of influences from all over that come together. So it's, it's a lot harder to put the stamp on us. Uh, but the thing I found is I think there's more pressure put on you that you're supposed to talk about landscape and Vikings and elves and Northern lights. And like, I feel the pressure far greater from sort of the marketing done by the tourism industry than the marketing done by the, uh, Icelandic crime writers. I mean, even the Icelandic crime writers, I remember like early editions of this from when I worked in the bookshop, early editions of Arnaldur Ingdreason, like all his stories at that point, at least they all take part in the Reykjavik and are this like gritty, like Reykjavik, like urban setting. And every single English edition had a picture of like a church in the middle of nowhere, somewhere <laughs> in the highlands or mountains and all these things that are just not featured in the books at yeah. all. And I'm sure they sold better with that. Oh, yeah. On. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> you got to let the publishers do what they, you know, they know their business. Yeah. And absolutely. I know from, I have experience of working with a publisher, working with authors and translators in Icelandic and getting them to write more descriptions of Icelandic scenery because we want, we have to say to Lilia, I know the drive from the airport, <laughs> from Keflavik to the city. <laughs> oh, wow is really dull for you. But for a UK reader, they want to hear that you drive through a, lo a lava field. It's fascinating to them. <laughs> so she's like, okay, okay, paragraph of what it looks like. Yeah, that's fine, I can add that. So, <laughs> you know, this is, it's about publishing, I guess. Again, Bjorn, you're really good at this. You're moving, you're answering my questions before I ask them. So this is really interesting. So my next question really was about landscape and it does feel, and when I, I visited Reykjavik, I was completely aware of the presence of the natural world. You can't get away from it. And as you say, you know, it is a small city and the, the natural world feels very, very present in it, very close. And I think we see this in quite a few of the stories in the collection. And um, there's one called The Gardeners by um, Ina Margudmason. Um, and it's talking about these farm, farmers who've come from the north and they've come to Reykjavik and they just landscape people's gardens using techniques that they learned on the land. But there's this constant feeling in this story that Reykjavik is almost borrowed from the countryside um, and that any sort of expansion is encroaching on this, on this countryside. Um, and there's another really key story, Keep Sleeping My Love, um, by Andre uh, Snare Magnusson, and he, where he describes going and out of Reykjavik and watching a sunset into a volcanic crater. Um, and I just had this sense all the way through this. I think there's another one called Incursion, um, where it's a modern housing estate, yet everybody living there can still hear sounds from the old lumberyard that was there. And actually in your story, uh, Two Foxes, I had the same sensation that the natural landscape is really rubbing up against 
um, the, the, the characters. Bjorn, so if you can pick this one up, in Two Foxes, did you have an idea that you wanted to convey this, this atmosphere? Yes, so, I mean, I'm, I, I tend to, you know, write or like to think that I write against tradition, but of course I always fail at that, as I think most writers tend to do. So I, I was very specifically tried to set all the stories in my collection in, in dull suburbia, where I grew up, basically the sort of suburbs and hamlets outside of Reykjavik were very boring and you desperately await uh, turning 17 so you can get a car and, and drive to Reykjavik and go to gigs or the cinema and all those things that aren't available out there. But what also comes with that is that Reykjavik, as I said before, it's a very young city, very young, which means it's, it's growing very fast. And because it's a young country and a historically underpopulated country, there are these great swaths of uh, empty land sort of all around it, lava fields and these things. And I, I, and so there's always, I think, ever since I was a kid, like for the past whatever decades, there's always building. There's always cranes over Reykjavik, over the suburbs somewhere. There's constantly building going on. If the cities are spreading and sort of encroaching on this land, and I definitely grew up in a, in a, in a neighborhood like that, where, and where, which is basically where I took, I guess, inspiration for a lot of the story, where like the streets are just being paved into the middle of this sort of wild land that's just there and, and you know, didn't really serve a purpose before. And people are desperately trying to imprint purpose on it. And then it, it comes, you know, they're adding, you know, light poles and asphalt and, you know, sidewalk markings onto this completely unruly lines of the landscape that's there before. So I think I definitely took inspiration for that, from that to some extent. Also just the, because the, there was so much building going on before the financial crash and then everything just stopped, like time sort of froze for a while. And there were these areas that were meant to become these massive neighborhoods set in these you know, beautiful, obscure places on the fringes of Reykjavik. And everything just stopped there for close to a decade. It was just empty streets leading nowhere. And you can't really see something like that and not write about it. Frida, can you see something like that and not write about it? <laughs> and not write about it. <laughs> As Bjorn just said. <laughs> um, yes, definitely. I grew up also. Suburbia, so I I uh, I know, but I think that landscape just ha has never really, um, yeah, fascinated me in that sense. I just don't get inspir inspired by nature. <laughs> I get inspired by people, so it's just. I think my focus is just elsewhere. And do you think, therefore, the, you're more of a city poet, more of a city writer in that way, because there are more people to feast on with your work? Um, maybe. I'm just, I cannot really say. I, it's the same that uh, Popo, uh, Björn said that, uh, um, you know, Reykjavik is a city and has the ambitions of the city, but it still has the proximity of the small town. So we never really know which we are, if we are city people or 
town people, you know, it's just, you cannot really make the distinction when it's so small. And does that, do you think that can be reflected in your writing? Because that sounds quite a tension that could be something that you could play with, that you could examine from different angles. My whole collection is based on this tension, basically. My, uh, the, the collection Itch, which okay. my comes from. Um, yeah, ab absolutely. There are a lot of, it's basically kind of the uh, first world problem of the young Icelander is that the pressure uh, is just too much because the ambitions of the city are extremely high and the proximity is so much. So everybody's always asking, what are you doing? You know, and it's just not enough to work at a cafe. And it's just, you know, it's kind of embarrassing not to own an apartment uh, after 30. And it's just, you know, this kind of the life goal race, you know, this kind of, it's so vivid and it's so close here. And it's just, when you go abroad to other capitals, you go to London and you go to Berlin or Paris, and you meet uh, people that are your age and they just don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and it's just young people are going away to just get relief from this, you know. So it's kind of this, you know, um, yeah. And I think that Icelanders are just, they are so extreme often in these kind of waves of, um, they are, you know, we are situated kind of between the US and Scandinavia. And so this, I feel like this kind of, and also we are, were a col, you know, we were a, 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 a Danish colony. So mm -hmm. it's kind of this overcompensation always as a small country, you know, trying to become this successful, uh, rich nation, you know, so it's, yeah, it's definitely, there is a tension there. I think it, I want to talk about the Icelandic crash and how that influences writing, but I think probably it would be good to have some readings now. So um, let's um, start with Bjorn. Could we have a short reading from Two Foxes and then we'll have a little discussion about it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I feel self-conscious now, having picked <laughs> a really naturey bit to read but here we go <laughs> he'd only once before seen a fox in the wild back when he was a boy hiking with his parents they were walking into a narrow valley in the west fjords when at the top of the next ridge they caught sight of little gray puffballs wriggling in the sunshine look said his mother she hung her binoculars around his neck and pointed him in the right direction do you see them fox cubs just emerged from their burrow. A vixen lay on a stone some distance away, keeping watch. He looked through the binoculars at the, at the cubs, tussling like little boys until their mother noticed the interlopers, yipped, and one by one took her young by the scruff and tossed them into their den. When he and his parents got there, there was no trace of the little family, but he'd seen the burrow's entrance through the binoculars. He lay down in the grass and peered into it. 
His father grabbed his arm and yanked him sharply to his feet, leaving behind a bruise the size of a 10 kroner coin. Have you lost your mind, lad? His father hissed. You can't be dangling your fingers in there. They'll bite and not let go until the bone snaps. He grabbed his son's index and middle fingers and squeezed until the boy whimpered in pain. Then, let, then he let go, horrified and shamefaced. His father had grown up in the East Fjords and as a child had seen lambs with their faces torn apart and eyes hanging out of their sockets, had heard the piteous bleeding of an Eve that couldn't find her lambs. He'd learned from a young age to hate minks and foxes the way that only a farmer could, seeing in them a cruelty that city kids could not conceive of. If I'd had a rifle, said his father later that same night, sitting at the entrance of the tent and stirring a mug of hot chocolate with a knife he kept on his belt whenever they went camping. If I'd had a rifle, I would have shot her and her cups too. Foxes should be shot on sight, just like minks. Anytime they run across livestock, they go into a frenzy and don't stop until they've killed everything they can sink their teeth into. He shook a few extra marshmallows into the steaming mug and passed it to his son, where he sat curled up in his sleeping bag. His mother was inside the tent, reading by the light of her headlamp. His parents had been short with one another since they'd encountered the vixen, and he felt like his father was really talking to her when he dried his knife on the hem of his shirt and said, normal creatures aren't like that. Fantastic, thank you. Um, it's interesting that you should read that section because that is actually a flashback, really, I guess, from the present, the main uh, timeline of the story. And it feels very much like the main character, who I guess is in his 60s in, in the story, mm. he feels quite displaced to me. So they're living in one of these suburbs that you described, um, where there has been a lot of building work but a lot of people had to leave because of the crash. So they're kind of isolated. They're away from where they've, the couple are away from where they lived in, in downtown Reykjavik for a long time. And when he sees this fox in his garden, he was reminded of this, the scene you've just described. Yet he seems as if he's on the fox's territory. So he's kind of displaced maybe from his home in Reykjavik, but also a bit from his childhood, from the, the Iceland that his father grew up in. Is this something that you were thinking of? This is what you wanted to go for in this story, that there's this character who's not quite at home where he lives, not like at home in his situation. Uh, yeah, perhaps in a roundabout way. I think it actually, in some sort of the initial inspirations, had more to do with what uh, Frida was discussing earlier about sort of, you know, the taking part in the rat race. Generally, I think the, it's the very, the earliest drafts, I think, came out of an, uh, a fascination with George Perec, uh, the French writer, and in particular, uh, the, the Things, his uh, story that just, that uh, tells the life of a couple by just listing all their, all the objects that they possess and their sort of constant attempts at sort of improving their home and sort of, surrounding themselves with belongings. So there was that feeling of sort of like having it all, of sort of having arrived at this place, at this destination in like a, a new house on a new turf and with all these things 
surrounding and sort of this sort of final destination. And it was actually a lot more to do with the ideas of marriage because uh, he, the story sort of starts with him waking up in the middle of the night uh, next to his wife and him and his wife seems to have sort of lapsed into one of these silences that lasts for longer than anyone would really like to, but nobody seems to be able to break them. And it really all this incident just revolves around sort of the final point at which they manage somehow to break their silence because it's, it's the night, it's dark, it's, they're not the same people they are during the daylight. And it, it all sort of gathers into this feeling and sort of that they're stuck in this feeling of what now? They have the house, they have the belongings, outwardly everything is fine. Yet they're all alone in the middle of this nowhere place and sort of, I think, running into the animal. Animals always have a purpose when you see them. They always have a very specific purpose that I feel like we're constantly searching for and wishing for. So it's coming to terms with that. And it, it, it allows him for a short moment to sort of break this sort of stalemate between, the, between him and his wife. And I think the story ends on this sort of worry that, you know, perhaps, you know, once the day returns, the stalemate will be back. They won't remember this like short period that they had. I think in many ways, I think it's a kind of object lesson in short story writing. It's quite brief. It has one main incident, but it packs a life into those pages. And I really thought, is this something, are you fascinated by the form? I felt I could sense a fascination with the short story, as if this is something that you could And I know you've done one or two collections, you published two collections, is that right? Uh, one collection, uh, I actually, the, my latest book, which came out in February is a novel. It's a novel, yeah. And that was hard because I had to learn how to write a novel. And it's, uh, in many ways, it's a lot more difficult to write a novel than a short story because one of the major things that I love about short stories is there's such a, it's, there's such a beautiful tight frame. So I tend to take that frame and sort of, put it around uncomfortable feelings in my own life or things that I look at in society that I'm uncomfortable with, that I don't quite understand. I think I think about a lot about the Flannery O'Connor uh, quote when she talks about how uh, a story is an answer to a question that, can, that, you, that can't be asked or something like that. I'm, I'm mixing up her quote now. But I definitely do that. So, and and because it's such a tight frame, there's no there's no flap, there's nothing, there's no excess anything in it, and because of that, there's there's no room for mistakes. Everything that's in a short story, or at least everything that's in a good short story, is there and serves a purpose, and that's what I love about them is that they you know they're this means of just really really very deeply looking at something. So when I started writing a novel, it was intensely difficult because you have so much space. It's, you know, it's like filling an entire, you know, hall with Legos. It, it, <laughs> it's, you have all this elbow space to move around in. And so it was a lot harder for me during that process to figure out what was meant and necessary for the story in the novel versus the short story. I, it, was, it was difficult to know what to cut and what was unnecessary. Let's have another short story where there's no flab, no room for anything. <laughs> and another really fantastic example of the form, 
Uh, Frida, can you read um, from home for us, please? Yes. You decide to walk. It's July and the weather's nice. The city tinted a twilight gray in the early hours of the morning. You glance at your phone. It's 3.14 a.m. You tally up how much you spent tonight. Maybe you were smart and stopped drinking after your third beer. Maybe you stopped drinking at 1 a.m. Maybe you've got work in the morning. You look like you're around the age where you're still pulling weekend shifts in a restaurant or cafe. Maybe you ended the night by chucking the last of many beers. You're not the kind of girl who lets half a pint go to waste, even if all your friends are heading out the door, even if, even if your wingwoman has found a suitable someone for the night. You look at your phone again and stick it in your pocket. Grasp your key ring and your other one, thread your fingers through the keys and clench your fists. A ready-made maze tucked inside your trench coat. It makes you feel better, even if you don't really know anything about self-defense. Are you supposed to punch your attacker right in the face or swing your fist around like a cat with its claws out? You make a mental note to ask YouTube when you get home. Home, how long to get home? You map out the work in your mind, chart a rough course in advance, taking into account what streets are narrow and shadowy in the half light and what streets are wide, well lit and well trafficked. At one point, you're going to have to take a deserted street that's lined with tall hedges. Your best friend's sister was attacked on a street like that. Or maybe it was your best friend herself. You never take that street after dark. And there's another one you never go down anymore either, even though it's the most direct route home, since you found out a girl was attacked there a couple of years ago. It was in the news. The, attack, the attacker threw her against the wall and was tearing at her pants. And she screamed and he ran off. You're not sure how loud you could scream or whether you could scream at all, really. Maybe that would be a good thing to practice sometime. You take out your phone. You want to call someone. Wish you had a boyfriend waiting, up, waiting for you at home. Maybe you do have a boyfriend at home in bed, but you don't want to wake him up over something so trivial. You wonder if any of your friends would mind staying on the phone with you while you walk home, even though you just spent the entire night together. Your wingwoman is busy, of course. You scroll aimlessly through your phone contacts as if you're focused on something other than the gardens you're walking past, the ones someone could drag you into. You hover over your mom's number. She would understand, even though she obviously went to bed ages ago. She wouldn't, like you. she wouldn't like knowing you're downtown by yourself, has often asked you to call when you get home if she knows you're going out. You always need to reassure her that there's nothing to worry about, that you'll be careful, you never drink too much, and you always try to walk home with someone else. She likes to bring up the attempted attack, attack a few months ago, or how many assaults are reported annually and how they, there are more every year. You always answer that it's not the number of assaults that have gone up, 
but reports. These days, women are more likely to seek help after being assaulted because there's greater public awareness. Sometimes you have no choice but to firmly end the discussion, say goodbye in the same voice you'd use to tell a dog to sit, toss your hair over your shoulder and decide that you're not going to let your life be dictated by would-be rapists. You go out on a Saturday night, you get drunk, but in the back of your mind sprouts the seed she planted when she told you her story. In the back of your mind lurks the secret you promised that you'd never tell anyone, ever, that she was. Under what circumstances, it doesn't matter, nor how old she was when it happened, just that she was. That knowledge is why you stop rolling your eyes. Her warnings took root in you instead of going in one ear and straight out the other. Thank you. Fantastic. I think the thing that strikes me as a writer, certainly, about this, most about this story is not just the subject matter, but it's the choice that you made to make it second person, to mm -hmm. frame it with that addressing a you. And my first question about it really is, at what point did you decide that you were going to write this story from this point of view? Was it, the, was it this addressing women, addressing the particular character? Did that start the journey or did you have the idea of the journey first and then make that choice? Uh, that was just the first sentence that came. Just, it was always going to be uh, an indefinite woman because it will and it applies to all of us so that's why i took the decision of making it indecisive you know maybe she has a boyfriend maybe she doesn't you know it's it applies to you know my whole friend group and you know it's just it just it just makes it made sense to me that it could be any of us and you use that throughout the story. You, it seems that it enabled you to expand it, the story into something, into a different kind of discourse than a story which was purely, um, I walked along the street, this is what happened to me, for example, or these were my thoughts as I walked home from a night out. That kind of discourse would have been a totally different one from the one that you generated by choosing this indefinite article, by choosing this indefinite definite person. And I, I kept on thinking, you're addressing the, citizens, the female citizens of Reykjavik, but you're also addressing citizens of cities all over the world, or maybe not just cities, countryside, women who are always checking their environment for potential threat. I mean, is that yeah. how you felt when you were writing it? Yes, absolutely. I've always felt like this in all of the cities I've ever lived in. And um, and it's just, um, yeah, it's universal, absolutely. And what really surprised me is that I wrote it in 2017 and, or 2016 maybe, and it was, you know, I, I feel like I wasn't as much aware of, you know, that taking the night back, you know, discourse that was going on uh, abroad. And I felt it was kind of, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was two, in 2017, there was Me Too, and then 
I feel the, the discourse really began. Uh, and then I had kind of started that story and it's, and the, the discussion has only grown, you know, over the years since it was published. And especially now in, wasn't it in UK, uh, text me before you get home or text me when you get home, the hashtag. Yeah. And it's just, um, I'm not sure how we're going to fix this problem, but it's, it's there. Yeah. And the discussion is generated by literature like this. Okay, we're nearly at the end. So um, are there any questions from the audience? Let me have a quick look. Um, there's a question for all of us, if there's time. This is from Becca. Um, what's your favourite thing about the city of Reykjavik? So Bjorn, tell us your favourite thing about the city of Reykjavik. Oh, my favourite thing about the city of Reykjavik. I guess it's, um, there are bits of it where this is going to sound really naturey again, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are bits of it where you can't see because the Reykjavik sort of is on the bay and there's, so there's mountains sort of on either side of it. And there are places where it looks like a city, but I, I quite enjoy the bits of it that don't, where you can actually see the, where you see sort of the similarities to the sort of little fishing towns like when you are along the ring road up in the West Fjords, there are bits of Reykjavik that look exactly like those towns and time seems to have sort of stood in place in them. And, and also I think because it's a young enough city that you can still see the landscape to, to some extent, which you can, you can't really see the landscape of London, I don't think, <laughs> you know, or, or New York, it's gone basically. <laughs> but here there are bits where there are, you know, rocks or cliffs, and things like that and they're sort of like the hill in Edinburgh perhaps and it definitely has that sense of familiarity to it that it looks the same as it did all those all that time ago. And um, Frida what's your favorite thing about Reykjavik? The swimming pools. Oh, oh. That's a good one yeah I, I changed yeah. mine. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of public swimming pools um, it's caused by um, that around 1900, every fifth man drowned at sea. Uh, and so it became obligatory very early in the century to uh, learn how to swim. And it still is. Um, so we have a lot of uh, public swimming pools that are heated. Uh, I don't know, how, how do you say it? Geothermally. Yes, thank you. Heated. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a really good place to finish our discussion. I think we've had a great time. Thank you both, Frida Isberg and Bjorn Haldorsson. Thank you to Stanford's who've hosted this event. And thank you to Comma Press who've um, welcomed me and who've published this wonderful anthology. Um, I don't know which city we're going to next, um, but I'm looking forward to the destination. I've had a great time in Reykjavik. I hope you all have too. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stanford's Travel Podcast. You can find us at stanfords.co.uk and follow us on social media at Stanford's Travel.